Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Julian Zelizer about his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He is the author of 20 books on American political history and has published over 900 op-eds and is a weekly columnist for CNN.com and National Public Radio's Here and Now. Julian, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Julian, your book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party is out in paperback this month. One of the things that struck me about the book is that it really helped explain in many ways the modern Republican Party, the Republican Party that we're seeing today. And so I thought it was important for you to begin this conversation with telling us who was Newt Gingrich and how did he enter politics and begin his rise through the Republican Party? So thanks. And that was uh, the point of the book was not to explain President Trump. Uh, it was it was written before that. But what I really wanted to understand is how a certain amount of extremism took hold of of Republican uh, Party politics and a kind of partisanship emerged where anything was permissible. And Gingrich was a, a, a guy who grew up um, traveling through much of Europe. His stepfather was in the military uh, and he went to Emory. He got his Ph.D. in history at Tulane. Uh, but he was someone who had ambitions for politics. He runs uh, in Georgia's 6th District several times uh, before finally in 1978 the seat opens up and he wins. Uh, so this is a young, ambitious, very brash, um, smart, uh, uh, but aggressive young Republican coming of age in the late 70s in a time the region is still primarily Democratic uh, and very eager to make sure that Republicans don't just succeed in the South in states like Georgia, but that they finally take control of Capitol Hill, which they really hadn't had control of since 1933, other than two short exceptions. And uh, this is who Gingrich is. And he starts off right in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, um, organizing and forcing the Republican leadership to try to accept his style of politics rather than the old style of governing and compromise and negotiation. When he arrives, as you said, save for two years, but since 54, 1954, the Democrats have been in continuous control of the House. And what Gingrich Gingrich grasps and is unwilling to accept is that without majority status, you're pretty much powerless in the House. Republicans prior to Gingrich, you know, sort of was content in their role as a fringe influencer of Democratic priorities. He doesn't he doesn't accept that um, paradigm. Right. That's exactly right. And, and that gets to the heart of one of the puzzles of the book. Uh, there's part of the stories about him and his style of partisanship and, and what he was promoting. Um, again, a willingness. You'll, you can say whatever you want about your opponents. You could take careers apart. You could break 
governing processes. But there was always figures like him in politics. Joe McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, someone he's often compared to. But the second question is, why did the Republicans embrace him? They weren't all like him. Uh, and many didn't actually think his style of governing was smart or healthy. Uh, but one of the key factors that uh, helped him was that Republicans felt like a permanent minority. And uh, in the House of Representatives, even after Ronald Reagan's elected in 1980 and you have this conservative revolution seeming to take hold, many Republicans said it won't be very useful and, and we're never going to have power. And part of the attraction of Gingrich for people who didn't really like him or understood the dangers of what he was doing was that maybe he could actually bring Republicans control of Capitol Hill. And many of them were frustrated with how Democrats treated him, uh, treated them. And, and that's part of how he starts to gain a hold among many Republicans rather than just like-minded Republicans. It, it seems to me in reading the book that w- that which was surprising to me is that, that Gingrich's plan was not so much based on the power of his ideas or policies, but really rather his willingness to do anything to to seize power. I think you said of him once that his approach to success was that you had to let the guardrails down. You had to be willing to attack key institutions of government and the character of your opponents. Yeah, that's right. And, because he was a professor before becoming a politician and uh, because he was a, a historian, he was pretty well read. I think many uh, colleagues and even journalists and historians focus on the ideas part of Newt Gingrich. And they almost uh, take on the image he promoted, grand ideas, a professor in Washington. But really, that's not what he's about. He, he's much more a power broker, much more a political strategist and the guardrails um, idea is is very important because partisanship always exists. And so you're trying to say, what's what's different? Uh, and the no guardrails is really essential. And we see that play out today all the time. Uh, when he would write to fellow Republicans in memos, stop worrying about things like civility, stop worrying about bipartisanship and negotiation, get rid of all of that. It doesn't matter. You have to win power and you have to be willing to do whatever is necessary. And for me, that was at the heart of what he was promoting, much more than any ideas of conservatism. And he first sort of makes a run at sort of sheer power grabbing by going after then House Speaker Tip O'Neill, unsuccessfully. Tell us about his efforts with Tip. And then the name of the book, uh, which bears the, the name of the next speaker, Jim Wright, um, from from O'Neill, he goes to Wright. So maybe tell us about O'Neill, where where it went wrong, and then what happened with Jim Wright. Yeah, so at the heart of, of Gingrich's uh, strategy wasn't so much to focus on conservatism versus liberalism. Rather, it was to paint Democrats as a corrupt establishment, a corrupt party that held power artificially through um, manipulating the rules and through preventing Republicans from having any kind of influence. And uh, the speaker was the point person. It remains the point person on Capitol Hill. And so Gingrich, even though he was only in office, you know, it was only a, a year into his first term in, in, in the House, he goes after Speaker Tip O'Neill, 
who is a Massachusetts Democrat, kind of an old New Deal liberal, uh, who had become speaker in 1977. And uh, he starts to go after him. One argument he makes to Southern Democrats, he says, Reagan won, so someone like Tip O'Neill shouldn't have power. He's too liberal. And we should actually have someone who is much more conservative. And the second is, he said that O'Neill embodied the corruption. He was a big city. He was almost like Tammany Hall uh, in the House of Representatives, but it didn't work. Um, it turned out that Tip O'Neill, even though he was old school, was pretty savvy in front of the media. He was very popular as a figure. He even appears on the television show Cheers, which is a hit show at the time. And he's able to basically ward off um, at Gingrich. And when Gingrich does many of his stunts in the early 1980s, O'Neill responds in kind. He's very tough with him. He calls him out instantly in front of television cameras as a McCarthyite. Uh, and then by the time Tip O'Neill retires in 1986 and he's replaced by Jim Wright, basically the effect, the attacks had been ineffective on him. Uh, Gingrich had not really been able to touch him, even though his rhetoric and strategy had started to take hold. So what, who was, Jim Wright, and why did uh, Gingrich have more success with respect to Wright? So he has a much better uh, strategy. Uh, it works much better with, with Jim Wright. Jim Wright's also uh, an old-school politician. He's from Texas. Uh, he had been in, in the House since 1954. And he, he actually was, a much, he was more moderate as a Democrat, even on issues like foreign policy, but he had been a very aggressive party leader. He had been the majority leader since 76, and he was someone who was very tough with Republicans, who would do what was necessary to basically hold them in line. Um, but he had two things which really worked against him. Three. One is he was not comfortable in front of the media. He didn't want to talk with them. He didn't like speaking with reporters. And so he couldn't really play on the same field where Gingrich was playing. Two, there were all these stories in the press that had been reported about him and different questions about his relationship with people in his district, about uh, his ethical practices on doing things like selling books. Uh, and these articles were out there. No one had ever found anything there. Uh, but there were enough stories to give him the air of maybe he wasn't a post-Watergate kind of Democrat. Maybe he wasn't uh, quite as, as pure um, as some Democrats wanted their leader to be. And finally, unlike O'Neill, even supporters of him in the Democratic Party didn't really like him personally. He was not a very warm person. He was kind of cold and removed. Most of his friendships were in Fort Worth, not in Washington. Uh, and so that made him a little vulnerable as well because people weren't feeling a personal need uh, to defend him so much as a partisan need to try to defend him against Gingrich. But the book deal was really the thing that Gingrich grasped, which was ironic because Gingrich then finds himself some years later similarly situated. But tell us about that, because that really was the the breaking point for O'Neill, for uh, yeah. Wright, rather. For Wright. Yeah, so Gingrich, there's lots of stories, and there's two that really uh, become the focus. One is he has a business relationship with a real estate developer in his district named George Malik. Uh, and they had the rights and the Maliks had a business. This was legal. It, it was ac acceptable according to the ethics rules at the time. 
Um, but there were stories and questions. Who is this real estate developer? Is he trying to benefit from his relationship with Jim Wright, getting, you know, federal money to help, help their business? So this is one story Gingrich talks about. But the story that really takes off in many ways is the one you mentioned. Uh, there had been ethics rules put into place after Watergate, which limited how much money any member of Congress could make speaking in front of groups. Uh, you're allowed to earn uh, an honoraria when you speak, but Congress, the House said, you could only earn so much and it's capped. Uh, but they didn't include book royalties in that cap. And so a lot of members of Congress publish these books. Usually they're like speeches or, you know, kind of co-written, ghost-written books, and they could sell and make as much as they wanted. And, and Wright had a book like that, uh, and it was a set of speeches that he had made and a, a few pieces of writing. Uh, and, and the book came out, and uh, it was very cheap, but he sold it in bulk to different groups when he spoke at a university, when he spoke to the Teamsters, so interest groups as well. Uh, and it didn't violate any of the ethics rules. This was key. There, he was allowed to do this, and he was doing something that was permissible, but it didn't look good. And so this story, not only Gingrich, but the press starts to kind of dig in more. And ultimately, it becomes uh, one of the basis for the ethics committee to take Gingrich up on his demand to have an investigation into the speaker. And the irony that you mentioned is very important because someone told me when I interviewed them that Newt Gingrich practices situational ethics, meaning he doesn't really care about ethics because he himself often was doing the exact things he was accusing others of doing. And even at the moment of my story, when he's going after the speaker for a, a kind of rotten book deal, he himself is under investigation for his own book deal where he raised money from Atlanta lobbyists to pay for the promotion of his own book. Uh, and it's literally happening at the same time. So were the Democrats asleep at the switch while all this was going on? Or did they think of Gingrich as a gadfly, McCarthy-like figure who would just burn out and fade away? Yeah, I think most of them did. Uh, there are some, like David Obey, uh, who was from Michigan and uh, a representative from um, Arkansas, who would often write op-eds saying Democrats should take this guy much more seriously, and this is dangerous if they basically concede to the kinds of stuff he was doing. He was going, it's basically criminalizing the speaker with very flimsy evidence. But many Democrats, I think, thought what you just said, including Wright, that, look, the House of Representatives, the Senate had seen people like this before, and they had seen a Joe McCarthy, but ultimately they go away. Ultimately, they did believe that the Republican Party was more defined by the George H.W. Bushes of the 1980s than the Newt Gingrich or Robert Michael, who was the House Minority Leader, who still very much followed a, a traditional style of governing, even though he was a loyal and staunch Republican. And so I think a lot of the Democrats thought um, this wasn't where most Republicans were going to be, and this was a specific problem that had to be addressed. That's how Wright thought of it. Right, and he would tell me in an interview I had later, he, he didn't fully see how the party was changing or that Gingrich was, in fact, the voice of the future, not some one-off, not some outlier. So I don't think they, while he was being investigated ultimately to his downfall, I don't think they ever really understood why Gingrich was succeeding. 
nor did they understand that once Wright was gone, the party was going to look more like Gingrich rather than less than Gingrich. This was not over in 1989. But in fact, I think what you point out is that Gingrich is rewarded in the Republican Party for his accomplishment in taking down the speaker. Yeah, so that's the, the final part of the story um, uh, and, and this puzzle of, of ultimately how do Republicans respond to Gingrich, not just who Gingrich is, uh, they reward him. In, in 1989, at the high point of this crisis, shortly before uh, Speaker Wright decides to resign, first time in the history of Congress that a Speaker of the House had resigned. So it was a really big deal in Washington. Um, they uh, vote to uh, make Newt Gingrich uh, the minority whip, which for many listeners might not sound like much, but it's actually one of the handful of leadership positions in the Republican Party, and it puts you on a path to be a uh, speaker if, if, or majority, minority leader. Um, and they vote to make him this, again, not because they love Newt Gingrich, but they think he's being effective. They're watching what he's doing to Speaker Wright, and they think there's something to what he's saying. Maybe, in fact, he will bring them the majority. He is successfully characterizing Democrats as this totally corrupt party. And so he comes out of this with a leadership position. And that's fundamentally different than Joe McCarthy, who ultimately never has that. And, and when Wright ultimately resigns in May of 1989, Gingrich is victorious. He's, he's brought down the most powerful person other than the president in Washington, and many Republicans will never look at him again as some kind of, you know, outlier or some kind of fringe element. And a few years later, he'll become Speaker of the House. Most tellingly, I think, in the Wright saga is the letter that Wright pens um, upon his departure. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it, because it was prescient, I thought. Yeah, so, um, well, uh, the, the speech he makes, I think you're yes, referring to. Yes, speech, correct. It's, a, it's an incredible speech, and listeners, you can uh, uh, get it on, um, you know, Google you can or YouTube and uh, or C-SPAN archives. And he makes this one-hour speech at the end of May of 1989, which is really, it's quite poignant. And Wright, who's not a great speaker, really delivers. And he goes, the first thing he does is he goes through every single accusation made against him and almost like a lawyer says why it's not true. He just rebuts everything. He admits he often didn't have the best judgment and he, he confesses that. Maybe he didn't always think of how things might look, but he's very clear on why none of the charges uh, are true or he never violated an ethic. But then he says uh, that he's resigning and he's giving himself up, essentially. Um, and he warns both parties uh, not to continue with what he says would be a mindless cannibalism that would ultimately consume the House. And by that, he meant to Newt Gingrich and the Republicans, don't continue with Gingrich-style politics. Stop. I'm giving myself up. And to Democrats, he's saying, don't respond in kind. Don't go after Gingrich. Let's just go back to normal, essentially. Let's reset. Um, and it's an incredible speech. It's a very powerful speech. The message for all of us living today is one that sounds like you knew exactly where things were going to go. And mindless cannibalism is a perfect way to describe Washington. But ultimately, he 
overestimated the power of the institutions. He didn't understand that this was not stopping, that he was, he wasn't the story right. He was just one step in Gingrich's long-term war, uh, one that the Republicans adopted. So when he becomes a leader in the Republican Party, the, the whip, it's really when Gingrich comes into his own. Um, what was, you know, sort of the part that we have been talking about was sort of like the rehearsal. Once he's in a leadership role, he really sort of blossoms, if that's the right way of describing a demagogue. But um, the thing that he did, which was so interesting, and this is a pre-Fox News Channel era, is he weaponizes what media exists to his advantage. And perhaps you can talk about the, the, the cam scam and how he used C-SPAN. Yeah, I mean, this was a big part of the story as it unfolded for me. Um, I mean, the, the most familiar kind of media that he used for people following and living through today is uh, conservative talk radio, which he went on and, and used to his advantage. But more important at the time, this was before the conservative media was big, was C-SPAN. And here was his channel. It had just started in the late 70s uh, when the House said you can cut, you can have cameras in the chamber uh, and, and C-SPAN forms on cable to basically take the feed from the House and show it to viewers. You can see politics in real time. It seemed like an innocuous channel. It was like a good government, you know, service basically for the public. It was certainly not... Uh, the kind of television that people tuned in to watch all the time. Uh, it could usually be pretty boring, but Gingrich saw an amazing opportunity. Here was a place he could go on air. He and his colleagues could say whatever they want and without a journalist interviewing them or without a reporter then analyzing what they had to say, he could get his message across instantly. And even though it wasn't huge ratings, Gingrich said it was still more people than a member makes speaking in their district, for example. So one of the examples I have in my book is in 1984. This is early in my story. Uh, he and uh, this group he works with, he forms a group called the Conservative Opportunity Society. It's a small group of about 12 conservatives. At the end of every day, any member of the House is allowed to go on the floor and make a one-minute speech. Usually these were used to talk about a post office being built for a member or to read a newspaper article. But what he does is every night they go on and they start to attack Democrats and their defense policy and basically say they don't want to protect the country from communism. They're not conscious or concerned about our security. And the speeches become increasingly blistering in April and May. And even more, they start to attack specific Democrats. And they say, Congressman Eddie Boland of Massachusetts, you don't support money to fight against anti-communism. Do you have a response? And if you were watching C-SPAN, all you can see is the person speaking. And what they couldn't see was no one was in the chamber. This was theater. But they're calling out Democrats who aren't responding. Uh, and it looks like they have no nothing to say. It looks like they're almost uh, guilty. And... The whole story blows up. Uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill gets so angry, he comes into the chamber, uh, and he goes from the speaker's chair down to the podium. 
He calls Gingrich a McCarthyite. He says it's the lowest thing he's seen in his entire career uh, in the House. And it's called cam scam. Uh, but ultimately, Gingrich got exactly what he wanted. He didn't care that he was reprimanded, that the speaker attacked him. What he cared about was getting out this message. Democrats don't care about defense. But more importantly, all the networks covered this. They covered what had just happened on C-SPAN. And because of that, in 1984, national viewers are learning about Newt Gingrich, and they're hearing about what this guy is doing on the Hill. And so that story for me really captured how he was able to weaponize something which was actually a good government reform from the 70s, letting people see how Congress works, and then using it as a partisan bludgeon. Right. The issue with um, C-SPAN was the agreement to allow for their broadcasting was that the camera was fixed. It was only on the podium. It could never scan the the chamber. And so you had no knowledge that it was a completely empty chamber. And Gingrich grasped that. And, and, and in addition to his speech, Hip O'Neill uh, blasting Gingrich, the other thing he does at one point is he orders the camera to scan uh, the chamber. And so viewers for a second, it's really quick when you watch it, you can see it's empty. Uh, and so you see, I think, I can't remember, it's not Gingrich, it's Trent Lott, uh, who's working with them. He's speaking, but you're watching, no one's there. Um, but even that, Gingrich turns against Tip O'Neill. He says, look what Tip O'Neill does. He violates the rules. He doesn't follow procedure. He's corrupt. He's tyrannical. So Gingrich has this instinct where he could take almost anything, even attacks on him, and use them to kind of make a case about why the other party shouldn't have power. You have a line in the book which said that Gingrich realized that he could manipulate the investigative journalists because they were, quote, more Indiana Jones and less New York Philharmonic. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, the, he, he understands on television uh, foremost that the, what television craves as a medium is sensationalism. Uh, and they love conflict. And it's funny, this is really early in the history of cable. CNN just went on the air in 1980. C-SPAN, as I said, is just a few years old. But he gets that television is about conflict. And so this is his argument, you know, more Indiana Jones and Philharmonic. You want to give them clashes. You want to give them controversy. And he doesn't care if the reporting is about him doing the wrong thing or or being you know somewhat unscrupulous what he cares about is getting on on television and the other thing that uh, you just mentioned which is important he also understands investigative journalism which comes out of the 1970s and uh, is really growing in popularity after watergate everyone wants to be woodward and bernstein um that uh, kind of journalism, which is always on the lookout for corruption and the relationship with lobbyists and politicians for good reason, it can also be used in a partisan way. And that's what he did. He took stories by reporters who were just trying to understand different pieces of Jim Wright, but he uses it and he draws a picture of a totally corrupt criminal uh, who's holding power. And many investigative journalists who I spoke with later admitted like they never thought of how their work could be used. And, and they were just doing little pieces and they didn't see how it was going to be um, uh, kind of manipulated uh, by, by Gingrich into something much more definite and something much more ruthless. The thing that I found interesting in this rise of Gingrich, who I consider to be 
a demagogue and a, a forerunner of um, former President Trump is the memo that you uncovered, the 1995 GOPAC, the, the Political Action um, Committee. Uh, it's the working paper. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about, because this, I think, speaks exactly to what you're talking about, how Gingrich understood the power of words and the importance of branding your opponents. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish I had uh, the books behind me, not in front of me, but uh, GOPAC is just this, just as context, it's this, um, it's basically a political action committee that Gingrich takes over in the mid 80s and he uses it to distribute videotapes of himself teaching these classes for Republican candidates about how to win office. And he also um, uh, distributes memos. And one of the memos, it actually comes out earlier, and it's resent for many years in 1990. It's about language uh, and how language is the key to power. And Gingrich offers this typology of different words that Republicans need to use if they're going to defeat um, Democrats. And uh, some of the words he's urging them to use at the time, though not today, are pretty extreme. He's, you know, uh, talking about using words like treason to describe Democrats, which in 1990 was not a familiar uh, kind of rhetoric, although today it's become uh, much more uh, familiar. And, uh, and, and that kind of use of aggressive language and, and implicit in that language is not following older norms of what you can't say was essential. And, and the memo is very important. It spreads. It's very controversial. Uh, but many Republicans in the early 90s are adopting that kind of um, wordage to talk about their Democratic opponents. In the memo, um, it says there are two sections of it. One, it says optimistic, positive governing words. He says, yeah. use the list below to help define your campaign and your vision of public service. These words can help give extra power to your message. In addition, these words help develop positive, the positive side of and contrast with your opponent. Here are some of the words. Share, change, opportunity, legacy, truth, moral, courage, reform, prosperity. Then the next paragraph, it's just contrasting words. Often we search hard for words to define our opponents. Sometimes we hesitate to use contrast. Remember that creating difference helps you. These are powerful words that can help you create a clear and easily understood contrast. And then they list these words, decay, failure, collapse, crisis, destruction, destroy, sick, pathetic, unionized bureaucracy, radical, threaten. It's, it's, Really, the beginning of what we are living through now, I think, Julian. That's that's exactly right. And one other word I'm looking at the memo now is traitors, which, uh, you know, th- that's a big step to start talking about your opponents as traitors to the country. And it is that memo, um, which comes out of everything he had done in the 1980s and uh, many. This this is not a one off. This is something he had thought about and the words that he wanted people to use, he almost tested them the way a comedian will test their material over and over. Uh, but this was the big step. And, 
Republicans aren't really responding by saying we can't go that we can't do that. We're not going to start using that kind of language. Instead, they actually start to use it. Um, and once he's speaker, it's totally legitimized by 1995. And so you see there uh, the kind of path to where we are today. And obviously, with our former president, the Twitter feed was one of the most notable parts of his presidency. And the words that he used uh, were often most striking in his willingness to say anything. And, and I really believe that that memo um, gives you a just great sense of how the party was changing so dramatically decades ago and how some of these guardrails had already come down uh, long before um, Donald Trump became president. Indeed, didn't even George Herbert Walker Bush <clears throat> begin to adopt? I mean, this is the a patrician, you know, gentleman politician. You can like or not like his politics, but as a human being, he is a decent guy. But he adopts Gingrich's strategy, does he not? He does. And and there's a, a group of you know, senior Republicans, the, the establishment type, as we call them today, who start to enter into an alliance with Gingrich. And uh, one is Robert Michael, who is literally the foil for Gingrich, the, the House minority leader, who even though he's always warning about what Gingrich is doing, and he's telling Jim Wright privately, I found in some diaries, like, Gingrich is dangerous. This isn't good. But he would say, I don't think I can control him anymore. Michael, gradually by 89, is adopting the same language that Newt is using to talk about um, the Democrats and how Congress works. And George H.W. Bush is a more dramatic case. He's the vice president. He is quintessential Washington. He's friends with Jim Wright. They're both from Texas. They know each other pretty well. But during his presidential campaign in 1988, which uh, is run by Lee Atwater, who's a, a South Carolina uh, political consultant, who I argue is basically, uh, you know, Gingrich's alter ego in in campaign politics. Uh, during the campaign, George H.W. Bush starts to talk about Jim Wright. And this is at a moment most Democrats and Republicans aren't actually talking about this yet. And he gives it national standing um, by talking about how corrupt Jim Wright is and how this ultimately shows that Democrats can't be trusted with power. Uh, and, and there's other examples of how George H.W. Bush goes down the low road uh, during this campaign. But it's a, it's a kind of great story, which still resonates today, of the establishment's uh, Republicans, the, the people who still believe at some level in governing, entering into alliances of convenience with the Gingriches of the party, but ultimately are not able to control uh, those parts of the party. And ultimately, it's the Mavericks who take over. You describe Gingrich uh, using the horse racing um, term trifecta. And you said the, there was a Gingrich trifecta. What, what, what do you mean? Well, um, you know, I think Gingrich, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the part of the book where, where that was, to be honest. It's been a little while. So I'll tell you the, yeah. the, the trifecta, as you described it, was character assassination, yeah. violate all right. norms, yeah. tear down government right. institutions. So, yes. Okay. So, so we're on the same page. I mean, the, the, the premise of my argument is that, uh, Partisanship always exists in Washington. We, we always have this as, as part of politics. Um, but 
elected officials tend to balance partisanship with other parts of their job historically. They would balance it with the need to govern, meaning part of why they were in Washington was to solve problems. They would balance it with a concern for the health of institutions, meaning they understood instinctively that you couldn't go anywhere because ultimately you would burn down the house. Uh, you would make uh, America's democracy inoperable and dysfunctional. Gingrich argued, forget the governing point, forget the health of the institution's point. We're focused on partisanship totally. And then there were different ways in which he went about doing it. Character assassination, which is the heart of what he did with Jim Wright, is essential to Gingrich politics. He did it with politicians. He did it with activists. If you were against him, his goal was to destroy how the public thought of you. Um, and, and it's funny, I found a letter from Jim Wright when Gingrich became speaker in 1994. Um, Jim Wright writes this very long, heartfelt letter to him saying, uh, I want to wish you well. I hope you have a good speakership. He says, I can never forgive you for what you did, which was to make me look like a criminal in front of the public, character assassination, um, but that he didn't want to hold ill will against him. And uh, Gingrich doesn't respond for like eight months and then just sends a short note, thanks for the note. Which, which captures the difference between them. Uh, then the processes of government can be weaponized. I think Gingrich believed that and he believes it to this day. There's nothing, uh, nothing so sacrosanct in, in Washington, whether it's the budget process, whether it's the rhetoric and, and norms of language that are accepted on the floor, or whether it's rules like ethics rules that were meant to make Congress better that you can't use as a partisan weapon. Everything is fair game. In, in Congress. And, and the mission was power. The mission was not to abide by any norms. And ultimately, when people said, you're doing dangerous things, you're going to really just take down the institution, he was okay with that. Uh, he didn't mind where he was taking things. And I think all of those have become the mindset of uh, most Republican leaders at this point. There is, it seems, in reading your book, a straight line from Gingrich through the Tea Party to to Donald Trump. Um, and today's polarization, I think, and why the book is so important, um, you think about, well, Newt Gingrich was yesterday's news and who was Jim Wright, but it, it's so important because it defines the polarization that we're living through, the, the rankest divide that... Um, Gingrich catalyzed. No, that's uh, that, that's true. And the line I draw at the end of the book is, I mean, Gingrich is literally the Speaker of the House from '95 to '98 when he himself is forced to step down, um, and and the Republicans around him, people like John Boehner, uh, who will become Speaker, they're profoundly influenced by him, and and most of the leadership. Uh, adopts Gingrich's style. And then you have the Tea Party in the 2010s, which uh, they just take things to a new level. Uh, they're in some ways more extreme, but they're practicing the same style. And and you can see that whether you hear how they talk on uh, on conservative television or whether you see them threaten not to raise the debt ceiling and send the whole country into default just to win a budget battle um, with President Obama. And then finally, 
President Trump. And, and I think President Trump makes more sense if you think about it this way. Otherwise, it's not clear still. How does Trump win office? How was there room in the Republican Party for him over all the other candidates in that primary? And when you see the party had changed so dramatically. And by 2016, this was a party that was very different than the one uh, that you had in the mid-70s. It makes a lot more sense. You see a foundation for what President Trump was doing, and there's a reason most Republicans, uh, even till today, uh, are very supportive of the former president and comfortable with the style of politics that he's employed. So I think that straight line is, is a, is a, is a powerful one. And I think part of it, whether you like him or don't like him, and, and many people don't like him, is Gingrich's skill, uh, in rebuilding his party and crafting a new form of partisan warfare that took hold. The last page of your book, um, has a quote from, uh, outgoing President uh, Obama. Uh, he's talking to his biographer, David Remnick, and I, I'll read it, and you tell me what you were thinking here. Yeah. Obama says, uh, weeks after uh, the election of Trump, he said, we've seen this coming. Donald Trump is not an outlier. He is a culmination, a logical conclusion of the rhetoric and tactics of the Republican Party for the t- past 10, 15, 20 years. What surprised me was the degree to which those tactics and rhetoric completely jumped the rails. There were no governing principles. There was no one to say, no, this is going too far. This isn't what we stand for. But we've seen it for eight years, even with reasonable people like John Boehner, who, when push came to shove, wouldn't push back against these currents. I I think that uh, quote by Obama when I first read it uh, totally captured what I was trying to do. And again, this was before, even in 2016, you didn't really know what the Trump presidency was going to look like. And many people wondered, will it, you know, he tame himself. Um, But there Obama, who Obama believed in bipartisanship and believed in tradition. He became famous in 2004 at the Democratic Convention making this speech saying there's no red or blue America. Um, and by the end of his presidency, I think he understood, A, that's not true, and B, that the Republican Party was very different than he thought. And his efforts to reach uh, kind of out to them systematically failed. The ferocity of what they tried to do to him really, I think, caught him by surprise. In his new book, The Memoir, he, he talks more about this and how he really underestimated what had happened to the GOP. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in retrospect, and certainly as I studied Gingrich, it was clear this is what the party had become. But that's just a powerful quote, because there you have the president of the United States, and again, one who really, really, at some level, wanted to believe um, that there was a way for the parties to work together, telling David Remnick and uh, in, in subsequent years admitting even more fully that this party had gone to levels he never imagined. And people like John Boehner, who still said they wanted to do things in traditional ways, they were all on board with this new GOP. I know people listening will say the Democrats were equally partisan, that this was just tit for tat, but I'm not so sure. I don't think there was symmetrical partisanship. I think it was asymmetrical 
Um, can you talk to that? What's what's your thinking about my thesis here? Yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in that idea. This idea that it's asymmetrical partisanship. Yes, both parties have moved further apart. Yes, you have. Uh, more people in the Democratic Party who are further to the left as you have more Republicans who are further to the right. But there's a fundamental difference in what the parties look like. What's most dramatic is that the Republicans as a whole, from the very top, their leaders down to the base, they have all moved uh, collectively uh, without much division to the right side of the spectrum, not just in terms of issues, but again, in terms of tactics, there's just many, many Republicans all the way up to the top, the former president of the United States, who are part of this do-anything kind of partisanship. You don't see this in the Democratic Party. Even the current president, Joe Biden, uh, I mean, that's who the Democrats picked. You couldn't have picked in this year with so much animosity in the Democratic Party to the GOP and so much fear about what the GOP was willing to do a more middle-of-the-road, traditional form of politician. And I think this is just true of Democratic leaders. Uh, they do not embrace the kind of partisanship. They are partisan, but it's not no-guardrails partisanship. They still check themselves. They're still much more willing as a party to abide by certain norms and to understand the costs of, of doing uh, anything, even to this day, even with everything, they are very reluctant, for example, to use this process of reconciliation, which is a budget process that's filibuster-free to get bills through because they're worried uh, that it will just undermine the sentiment uh, in, in Washington. Democrats have the Joe Mansions of their party who actually have power. You can't find that in the Republican Party. So these are not the same kind of partisan parties. It's not that no partisanship exists. It's a fundamentally different understanding of what partisanship is and what can be done in pursuit of partisan power. You described it as one party still believes in government and the other one doesn't, even though they are the government. That's exactly right. And, and the philosophical difference, I think, helps explain why one party is willing to go much further. Uh, ultimately, Democrats can't afford a dysfunctional Washington because they are a party that believes in government. And for government, you need to govern. Republicans have embraced an anti-government philosophy. And so they're much more comfortable if government is at a standstill or it's not really working. I have a quote in the book which captures it not by a Democrat, but by Steve Bannon, who was one of Trump's top advisors early on. And he said in an interview that, uh, you know, Democrats come into the room prepared for a pillow fight and Republicans come prepared for a head wound. And I think this is a very uh, different outlook, and it is rooted in this point you're making, uh, that if you believe in government, you need to govern, and so Democrats can't go totally off um, from uh, certain norms. Is there, speaking of norms, is there any going back to normal, or has the Rubicon be, been crossed uh, never to be returned to? You see, as you mentioned earlier, the Joe Mansions who want to return to regular order politics and are still hoping that compromise can be there. And then you've got um, McConnell, who during the Obama years seems to be doing the same thing in the Biden years, which is yep. no cooperation under any circumstance 
on any point? I, I don't think right now it's possible. I think um, uh, just in terms of polarization as a phenomenon, the parties not being able to work together and uh, partisan incentives working in both parties, these are really deeply structured why it happens from the way money is given in politics to gerrymandering. But then the question of the Republican Party, uh, the point of my book is this is so deeply rooted. You really need a new party. You need the Republicans to remake themselves because there is no change in the short term. And even Mitch McConnell, he's kind of a cleaned up version of what Trump is doing. He's quiet and he does it behind the scenes, but he's employing the same kind of ruthless understanding of partisanship. And so a change is always possible. I've, I've kind of studied enough history to see how parties can fundamentally change themselves, but we're not in that process now. The Republican Party is where it is. There's very little discomfort within the party other than a few outliers, the, the never Trump kind of crowd, which is still not a, a movement. It's, it's a handful of Republicans. And so un- unless something changes, you have one party, the GOP, that is not really going to move from where they are. And so all other arguments then about bipartisanship, returning to norms, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, you need a different kind of Republican Party to gradually take hold. So were you advising President Biden, would you tell him um, do tit for tat in a sense ignore these guys, go full measure um, alone, or cling perhaps like Obama did naively to the notion that we could get something done if only we just treat each other a little bit better. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the wise thing for Biden would not be to go down that route because it's he's already seen it's it's not really going to happen. I mean, I think Biden is strategically like on infrastructure attempting to get a part of a program that might have enough Republican support, although even that is unclear um, whether this compromise can pass. But I think the smarter move, if you're a Democratic president, is what he did with the stimulus package. It's to make sure you keep all your Democrats on board and get the legislation through. Ultimately, presidents are going to be measured by what they accomplish. And if a Democratic president invests everything in trying to win elusive support from a Republican Party that's not going to work with them. It's the Lucy and Charlie Brown phenomenon. Ultimately, they end up with very little. And, um, you know, Obama's biggest accomplishment was the Affordable Care Act, which he ended up passing really around the Republicans, not with them, because he finally got at the end they weren't going to work with him. Uh, and I think Biden really has to do the same. It, it's very clear in the early days that the party's becoming, there's a new generation of post-Trump extremism that's starting to take hold in the party. And so if Biden thinks he can compromise with that, he has another thing coming. And I think that evidence of that, um, and I agree with you, evidence of that is what we saw at the CPAC conference this weekend, I know you, you followed it, um, but the one, one of the many things that stood out was that at one point, one of the speakers was talking about how Biden's vaccination target hadn't been met in, 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 in many states. And the response of the audience was to cheer. They were to cheer the fact that people were not Saving their own lives, in a sense. 
I mean, it, it is really incredible. The CPAC conference was um, a kind of showcase of extremism. Um, and, and even the, the new drive against the vaccine is, is not just bubbling up from the grassroots. It's being driven by major conservative uh, sources of power, whether it's Fox News, whether it's Republican legislators who are echoing these. And to have at a conference, as we're finally getting out of a pandemic, people cheering on the failures of the cure is it's it's hard to even uh, grasp. And what was a fringe idea uh, a decade ago of, of really this fight against vaccinations is now totally mainstream. And and again, some might say there was there was a uh, an interview with the um, a Republican um, Tim Pawlenty from Minnesota the other day. Just saw a clip of this where he was saying, yeah, the CPAC had extremists, but, you know, uh, both parties have their extremists. And if you listen to conferences of both parties, you're going to hear these kinds of elements. And the interviewer said, well, what's a comparable liberal conference that had this kind of stuff? And what's a conference that had a president, a former president speaking at it? And he couldn't answer that, of course. And it captures uh, and and showcases just where the party has moved. And I, my suspicion is we're not at a point where it tames itself, but I think it's going to become even more extreme. And this whole controversy over the vaccines is really, I mean, it, it's not simply rhetoric we're talking about. This is dangerous stuff because it's, uh, making it impossible for the nation to fully deal with the crises we face short or long term. At that conference, there was a straw poll. And when Trump's name was on the straw ballot, he received 70 percent of the vote. When his name wasn't on the ballot, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is every bit as um, Trumpian as Trump, received 68 percent. So the older guard, Trump, were he to step aside, leaves room only for, you know, the son of, if you will, not the literal son of, because that's another story, but but ideological son of, of Trump. Oh, that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, I don't know if polls like that hold. I don't know if Trump, as he returns to the public stage, which it looks like he's increasingly interested in doing, brings down the numbers of some of the new Trumps. But that's the choice that the party will likely have going into 2024. Either the former president is running again or people like DeSantis who are somewhat cleaned up versions of Trump. But practicing Trumpism in all senses, uh, and, and, and they're just taking over as the new generation. Uh, that's, that's the kind of debate you're going to see within the party rather than Trump versus anti-Trumpism. Yeah. The, the, I want to read you a quote, um, from, from Trump's speech and I want to focus just on one last, the last part of it because it's an interesting thing that's being raised here. Trump says, uh, and I quote him, there are two sets of laws in this country. One for the left-wing mob, the rioters and the rampagers, who can do whatever the hell they want to whomever they want to do it. And then there's another set of rules for law-abiding conservative Americans who happen to be Republicans, who simply want to speak their minds and exercise their rights to talk about the election. Now, that's sort of the big lie in, in a sense. But what I wanted to ask you about, I'm interested in your thinking is 
this war that that Trump is waging against big tech and their power to essentially silence people that they think um, pose a threat to our democracy, an unelected you know group of oligarchs, frankly, um, the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams, de- de- determining for us who has access to their platform. And I'm wondering what your – leave aside whether or not you can bring a lawsuit against them. I don't think you can. They're not state actors and all that. But this is a fundamental issue, um, this f- free expression of ideas through these essentially what have become utilities – um, yeah. in our community. So can you talk a little bit about what your thinking is on that? Because it's not a simple no. addition to me. I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, I do think, uh, and I don't know enough about the company's thinking, but the initial uh, taking uh, Trump off came at a time um, there were serious fears about violence ensuing from what he was saying and a realization that, you know, this movement uh against the election results was taking form uh, through social media. Um, I don't know if it's true kind of how much conservatives beyond him have been silenced relative to voices on the left. I mean, certainly there isn't much silence about key issues coming from the right in terms of the election, in terms of the vaccines. But in general, yeah, I mean, I'm I tend to be reluctant to, have the owners of Facebook or Twitter start to make judgment calls. He's exceptional. I mean, he was the president abusing his power in a very dangerous way, in my opinion, at that moment. And so I think the logic is clear then, do we take this voice off or that voice off? Um, but I guess it's not enough of my expertise. How do you create some form of regulatory boundaries because it's not even like a newspaper, which is a finite product. It's whatever many pages, and you can at least make some determinations. This seems like endless space. So it's unclear to me how do you monitor that against violent statements and people who are kind of stimulating violence or threatening violence um, versus a dangerous form of regulation where voices just start to take uh, be removed from the public airwaves. Yeah, for me, when I listen to this, I, I think of the Eugene Debses of the world who yeah. were speaking against uh, World War One draft and, and the war and interventionism, and they get sentenced to six-year jail terms, ultimately, you know, released and, and the like. But I, I wonder whether or not this is closer to that than than we realize. It could be, and I, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, I think the the place I would take issue with the statement that you read is it's not a problem that simply conservatives face. I mean, I think a lot of liberals have, have similar fears, and now that this whole debate over critical race theory is taking place, I, I can, I mean, Congresswoman Green, uh, the day of we're recording this, is is trying to uh, literally prohibit teachers from teaching um, whatever she's categorizing as this uh, through law. So you could imagine how this will also have effects on the airwaves. And in the end, I don't think this is the source of the problem. The source of the problem is the party. The source of the problem is voters who support this kind of stuff. This, uh, and, and I think 
it's very difficult to figure out, as you're saying, how do you take what's essentially a, uh, an institution of either communication or media like Facebook and Twitter and start to make judgment calls by the, the, those who own it that don't end up in the place you're talking about. And, and I just don't know how you do that. And, and this is different than newspapers. And I don't know how you do it in something that has endless space. And, um, and I think there's big questions we need to face and that need to be addressed. Last question, and I appreciate your taking so much time with us today, is looking into your crystal ball, what should we as concerned citizens be looking for over you know the next weeks, months, years um, to see where America is headed? Well, one big measure for me that uh, I certainly have followed a lot is voting. And um, we're in this really terrible moment where you have all these states um, systematically moving to make voting more difficult and uh, gaining a lot of support um, from party leaders to do this. And uh, when, and, and the Supreme Court um, has not has, has took, you know, made a ruling that will make it difficult um, to stop this. And I think watching what happens to voting, which for me is still the basis of our democracy, and whether that right continues to erode and become more difficult or whether there's pushback. And as we saw in 2020, efforts to make it more robust and participatory, that's a great measure, in my opinion, of, of what is the health of um, our, our democracy. And obviously, the second would be, you know, Joe Biden, again, whether you like him or don't like him, is um, – I mean, one part of what he's trying to do is to try to say bipartisanship is still possible. Another part is you can still have some restraints when you're the leader of this country. You can still say there's certain things I won't say. There's certain things I won't do. I will still try to govern as a leader. Can he sustain that for the next few years, or does he get seduced by the temptation in many ways uh, to get much nastier and, and uglier? And I don't know if if he can sustain it and be successful. I think it would be some ray of light for the idea that we can fix things over time. But but I'm not. I'm still very pessimistic on both of those fronts. The book is Burning Down the House: Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian Zelzar, it's a terrific read. It's an important read, and I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. It's terrific. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.